Hi everyone, welcome to this first episode of the Hikma Project podcast. My name is Sakib Safter and I'm your host. We'll be talking to Mevlavi Sufi master and teacher Sheikh Kabir Elmensky. Sheikh Kabir is the author of a number of books which include The Knowing Heart, Living Presence, Holistic Islam and more recently in the House of Remembering, as well as numerous translations of Rumi. I've known him for a number of years now and I can testify that he is the real deal. He represents, embodies for me a very high level of spiritual maturity uh, and the Mevlevi Sufi Islamic tradition. So in this podcast we discuss human conditioning, both religious and cultural, the pedagogy of Rumi and Shams, which is a pedagogy of mirroring and sohbet, uh, and goes beyond the normal teacher-student relationship, uh, as well as approaches to translating and reading Rumi. The transcript of this uh, talk is available through this podcast in the notes area or indeed uh, on the website The Hikma Project. Com. So, without further ado, here's the podcast. Welcome, Sheikh Kabir. It's wonderful to have you with us. Thank you, Sheikh. So, a couple of things I wanted to dis- discuss today. Um, the first thing is is about human conditioning, both cultural and religious. Are we as human beings um, uh, restricted? Um, or confined to it or is there a possibility of being liberated from it and if so how does that happen hmm. well we wouldn't be human beings without a certain amount of conditioning the question is is the conditioning a positive factor or a negative factor and also how aware are we that we are conditioned so Spiritual practice, by which I mean any practice that raises our level of consciousness, that allows us to witness ourselves, our thoughts, our emotions, our behaviors, um, is, gives us a vantage point on our conditioning. And through that, we can engage in a process of, first of all, deconditioning, which may mean uh, doing what we can to reduce the negative forms of conditioning that uh, do harm in our relationships, uh, that cause worry, fear, negativity, and so forth. So deconditioning, first of all, and then reconditioning, which is to put in place of those negative factors, to put in place behaviors, uh, responses, um, shall we say positive habits like generosity, forgiveness, patience, gratitude. But finally, there is also the possibility of unconditioning, 
which is to free the human being from these uh, factors of conditioning, which are, as I said, sometimes positive, sometimes negative. But we have, we are in our essence, we are eternal spirit. We are unconditioned. We are infinite. We participate in the infinite being uh, of existence. We participate in the divine. And it is vitally important for the human being to have some experience of that. And to the extent we have an experience of that, these other levels of conditioning are transformed. We are uh, freed to some extent from negative aspects of our conditioning. And we take on those attributes of the divine reality that are beautiful, loving, and intelligent. Wonderful. So does that mean, just to be clear, does that mean as, as human beings, we, are we limited to a subjective experience or is there a possibility of objective perception and understanding of reality. Well, just to define our terms, if by subjective you mean distorted by a uniquely personal point of view or limited by a uniquely personal point of view, um, I would say uh, that that kind of sub, we should be able to transcend that kind of subjectivity. If by subjectivity you mean a unique viewpoint within this non-dual reality, this unified reality, I believe we will always have a subjective experience. In other words, an experience of a perspective, of an I. There's always an I that is... Uh, uh, the, the viewer. Yeah. But the important question is, is that I veiled by prejudice, by selfishness, by negativity, by trauma, etc., etc.? So uh, every soul has the possibility of a uniquely subjective and yet pure vantage point. I'm reminded of what Ibn Arabi said when asked essentially about this question. He said, my journey was entirely within myself, but when I came to, uh, when I came to the presence of my Rab, of my Lord, when I came as close as a human being can come, I saw that I was nothing but servanthood without a trace of sovereignty. I was nothing but servanthood without a trace of sovereignty. So by servanthood here, he means everything uh, of value in the human being 
every resource, every strength, every capacity is lent to us, reflected to us by that divine sovereign. And in a sense, all agency or primary agency is with that sovereign, that divine being. And yet we as a unique individual reflection of the divine being, according to how much we can polish the mirror of our own heart, um, we can be in that, uh, uh, that subjective vantage point, which is relatively objective. In mm. other words, it's not distorted by the unrealities, by unrealities like selfishness, like prejudice, bias, uh, trauma, fear, unnecessary fear, and so forth. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. And just to be clear for our listeners, we're, we're not simply just saying that this is a perspective, and please correct me if I'm wrong, we're saying this isn't simply the perspective of somebody who's who's morally good in character and is not selfish and greedy, etc. But there's an element of divine eminence almost that becomes the eyes by which he or she sees and so forth, that there's some higher order of perception in this non-dual reality which allows them to witness uh, the cosmos or, or the afar, the horizons outwardly and within. Is that correct? Yes, exactly. There's no way to talk about this whole subject fairly unless we acknowledge that human beings are at different levels of consciousness. And at one level of consciousness, we are imprisoned within mm. our conditioning. We know, we think we are our conditioning. At another level of reality, we begin to witness our conditioning, even if we can't change it or do much about it. At another level, we have not only witnessed it, but we have, in a sense, uh, molded our conditioning uh, in a positive way. And more and more, as the human consciousness ascends through the levels of consciousness, one begins to be to reflect more and more of a greater intelligence, of a, of a divine intelligence and presence, and which, at which point one's very individuality seems almost insignificant. And there is a degree of freedom from the self even while the self is there as a tool, as a manifestation. Well, and in currently there's a lot of um, development of mindfulness in uh, Western consciousness, mainly through John Kabat-Zinn and various other sort of teachings that have developed, um, especially in the secular world for, for his stress reduction clinic. Um, it, is that the be and end all of this higher sort of uh, vantage point or in in the Sufi path is there more is are there further sort of steps and journeys to be made after mindfulness mm. mindfulness is 
a useful tool being appreciated more and more within our society and on the level of mass consciousness or relatively mass consciousness. But what, how do people understand mindfulness? Some people understand it as just coming into the present moment and a sort of state of, of being present, meaning our attention is here in the present. We're not daydreaming. We're not living in our memories. We're not living in, uh, uh, yeah, we're not living in our heads. And so this is a useful beginning. It is a step toward becoming free of conditioning and being able to be mindful of our, what had previously been unconscious behaviors, unconscious habits of thinking and feeling. In our teaching, we talk about heartfulness as a step beyond mindfulness. And heartfulness is when we begin to relate to others and to existence itself through this faculty metaphorically called the heart, because it's not the physical heart primarily, uh, but the heart as an instrument for qualitative perception. When I say qualitative perception, I mean it's the heart that knows value. It's the heart that appreciates relationship with other human beings, other living things, and ultimately with the divine order. So to awaken heart perception and to live more and more uh, in the through the heart, we go far beyond the idea of just being attentive in the present moment. We begin to awaken aspects, innate aspects of our humanness that are so much deeper, so much richer than merely paying attention in the present moment. It's much more than just an act of attention, but that act of attention, which is mindfulness, is an essential step. Uh, it's one way, maybe not the only way, to move into that state of heartfulness. It certainly is complementary to it if we don't restrict ourselves too narrowly to the concept of mindfulness. Because while it's good to move from our daydreams and illusions into the reality of the present moment, there are further steps which take us into timelessness, which takes, take us into a present moment that's vast, <coughs> that is beyond time and beyond mere physical reality, physical circumstances. So, but mindfulness training is 
a useful psychological tool tool but it still keeps us confined within our own individual identity and does not necessarily bring us into the greater field a greater field of identity a greater field of relationships which the heart is capable of so speaking of relationships I know in the tradition that you embody and teach, um, Rumi and Shams had a wonderful uh, dialogue and relationship of mirroring that went beyond the tutor and mentor, normal sort of uh, teaching um, relationship. Could you say something about this pedagogy of mirroring and what happens during uh, this uh, non-didactic mode of teaching, which I believe is called Sovet in, in the tradition? Yes. Um, Rumi and Shams were complementary. They were not equal in the sense of being it's the same in their qualities or in their, um, yeah, let's say in, in terms of their qualities and attributes. Shems was in some ways the more mature one, the one who initiated this transformation in Rumi. But Shems needed Rumi as much as Rumi needed Shems. Shems said, I was like a stagnant pool until I met Rumi and he got me flowing. So what was modeled in this relationship is a mirroring of two beings who are equalized by love. They're humbled by love. So there's no superiority, inferiority in this relationship. There is a friendship uh, that could just as well be called love in a, in a spiritual sense, a spiritual love. Not romantic, not erotic love, spiritual love. So it is still a potentially a beautiful model of spiritual relationship if we could approach each other, if human beings could approach each other with that humility, that openness, that non-defensiveness. And if they were, if each was also open to the dimension of the heart, to each were um, in the presence of the divine presence, then each would lift each other up and mirror to each other the qualities of the infinite. It starts to sound a bit abstract and it's not an abstract or impersonal state. It's a very beautiful state. It's a uh, it's an intoxicating state even. Um, 
and it is in a sense the purpose of life and human beings have the capacity to support and sustain each other in that uh, realization of the generosity of the divine the nurturance of the divine that the divine can actually come through human beings and for human beings so it's a portal that this relationship itself is a portal to spiritual reality to a unity in which friend and friend still exist they didn't merge into a amorphous oneness um, in some ways shams was power and Rumi was receptivity and beauty. Um, Complementary, yet different. And an utterly transformative experience, obviously for Rumi, but no doubt also for Shams. That's beautiful. So. I think we've really touched on some really important points there. There's mindfulness, human conditioning, uh, this um, journey to a higher subjective perception, the ability to enter this heart space and be in a relationship, which is more than just a conditioned response to somebody, but uh, there's more depth and a level of mirroring. And from what I've read, the, the Mevlevi tradition is a very sophisticated educational program. Historically, it's from music to the arts and language and cleaning and cooking, um, very comprehensive. So how would some of these ideas translate for you as a Mevlevi teacher in terms of pedagogy? What does that look like? in terms of your teaching approach with your students? It's founded on metaphysical principles, a metaphysical understanding about the nature of reality and the position of the human being within this reality and the experience as well, not just the conceptual framework, the experience of participating in this greater being. So the pedagogy will naturally develop out of that so that it's not a uh, prescribed system as much as a way of life. And we are grateful for tradition and all the examples it provides in terms of ceremony, uh, manners, um, service, worship, meditation, so many it has so many different aspects but they're all all of these aspects are serving one purpose 
and it's necessary to have an idea of what the human being is and what the human being uh, can become. And that becomes the criteria against which everything else is measured. Um, our every action and word is measured against the fulfillment of this purpose. At the same time, we probably couldn't conceive of much of this if we didn't have historical examples of how this truth was lived. That's something that tradition can, can offer. When you have a tradition of enlightenment, a tradition of, <clears throat> we would rather call it intimacy with God. Um, when you have such a tradition, it's replete with examples of ways of being, ways of speaking. And you can uh, help people towards this reality without even a, um, shall we say, a, a deep comprehensive training in metaphysics, just through behaviors, through phrases that we repeat. For instance, Mevlevis often say as a, as a greeting, Ash Golson, may it be love. And then the person responds, uh, Ashkun Jamal and Olson, may it be love and beauty. So people are always reminding each other of the objective. Uh, yeah, uh, things as simple as bowing and touching the heart. These gestures are gestures of non duality, they're gestures of the sacred. So you can be a Sufi and you can uh, walk this path, travel this road without a lot of intellectual baggage and without, you know, one feeling that I need to have a PhD in Sufism <laughs> in order to effectively <laughs> travel uh, on this way. And, uh, so we should not confuse scholarly knowledge, as beautiful as that may be. And we recognize that we have a beautiful tradition, intellectual heritage, and a cultural heritage that is exquisitely beautiful. But the everyday life of the dervish and how the dervish serves a cup of tea uh, could be worth a PhD or more. <laughs> so I, I know in having spent time with yourself that the teacher is often called Dede. And so what is the role of the teacher in this educational model? Is it, would you say it's a student-centered pedagogy? Is the teacher merely a facilitator? Uh, how, how does it, what's the dynamic in, in your teaching model? 
we learn from each other, surely. The teacher, certainly, I, speaking from experience, the so-called teacher, and this, functionally that would be me in some cases. Uh, I learn from the sincerity and devotion and discipline of our students. I may be inspired by that. And I may be reminded of my responsibility to maintain or attain a certain degree of what we're hoping to attain. At the same time, there is a saying in our tradition, and I don't remember who should be attributed to, but it's something like this. When the seeker visits a person of knowledge, they learn more from their adab than from their knowledge. So this reminds us that the knowledge, as important as it is, is not as important as being. And if there is any kind of hierarchy at all, it is a hierarchy of being. But the hierarchy of being is a hierarchy in which <laughs> the attainment of being is, uh, to speak of it mathematically, is in inverse proportion to our egoism. Okay? So the more the human being uh, can be freed of their personal egoism, their concepts of self, their uh, sense of privilege and entitlement and such things. The more a human being is freed of that, the higher they are in a sense of, of this, in this hierarchy of being. Meaning that uh, the hierarchy of being is a hierarchy of one's capacity for love. And that's what I discovered myself after having met masters of will, masters of knowledge, masters of power. But when I met a master of love, everything else sort of fell to the background. So just building on that tradition of great learning, and Adab, as, as you've said, uh, in, in the Mevlevi tradition, you have the great works of Rumi, his master, the, 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 the quotes of Shams. And in the West, um, I'm sure you've seen this great, probably more aware of it than, than I am, but this, this great... Uh, sort of development of uh, uh, Rumi being read, digested, reflected upon from social media to uh, all sorts of translations um, of, of Rumi. So, so a couple of questions come out from him. Number one, 
why now what does what's Rumi's message for us what's a 13th century scholar Islamic scholar offering to people who might not even have any religious baggage but are finding a message in in his works and how accurate is that message has it been distorted by popular translations like Coleman Barks uh, who has a more sort of free verse style of translation uh, is a vocabulary a spiritual vocabulary um, so, so what's going on there and and sorry just to add Elif Shafak's wonderful book which I'm sure lots of listeners have either heard of or read 40 Rules of Love an amazing sort of account of um, how she's managed to intertwine a 13th century sort of narrative into uh you know a parallel story that takes place now and almost like you know they're in they're they're intermingled um in a very meaningful organic way but yeah so what's going on here lots of Rumi, lots of translations human needs do not change much over time our essential needs and the truth the nature of reality doesn't change and insofar as Rumi speaks to us truly about the nature of reality and the human beings need for the divine what he offers is the most essential knowledge and beauty for the human being and it's most of it is timeless. When I say most of it, what I mean is that there may be, um, in Rumi's writing, there may be references, allusions, etc., that don't have a lot of meaning for people in, let's say, Western culture at this time. Coleman Barks may have conveniently left out some of that material. I think it was more of an aesthetic decision than a uh, attempt to hide the Islamic <clears throat> context, Islamic origin of, of Rumi's message. In fact, in one of the most uh, frequently quoted passages translated by Coleman, it's a, it's a story about the man who is calling Allah, 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 Allah. And then the devil appears and says, well, I hear you calling Allah, but I don't hear you. I don't hear Allah's response. And eventually, I'm shortening the story a bit, but as you know, eventually the man f falls into a depression, but then uh, Allah sends Gabriel, I believe, to inform him that you're calling Allah is Allah's answer to you. Well, this is one of the most quoted passages from Coleman. And, but he doesn't hide that the man is calling Allah. He doesn't change it to God or source or, <laughs> you know. so, um, you know, I will defend Coleman. I would say that, his, 
if he has any sins of translation, they're sins of omission, not of commission. In other words, he's left certain things out, but I don't believe he's uh, left them out to, to try to cut Rumi from his Islamic roots because he often does include mention of Muhammad. Uh, I believe Rumi would be happy with anybody who appreciates his message, even in simple ways. And that Rumi would not demand that, uh, that he serve his meal, you know, with some kind of Islamic labeling on it. Food is food. Faith is true faith is true faith. And he understood that entirely. Uh, I will also quibble with those who try to put Rumi into the box of their concept of Islamic orthodoxy, because he doesn't fit in that box either. He is a true Muslim, I believe, a true lover of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. But he also demonstrated that one can uh, be that kind of Muslim and live an extraordinarily creative life, a liberated life, uh, a life that uh, is universal, is universally meaningful to people. And that's why he can so easily be loved by people of all traditions. And people can read even the passages of, of Rumi's in which uh, there clearly is an Islamic context or Islamic content. And it doesn't bother people because they sense the truth that's there. In that sense, uh, the, some of the translations, the tr good translations, and some of Coleman's are very good. They're not exactly translations. I mean, he, they're versions, and often he leaves out a lot of material and conveniently translates or, or uses lines, and then he'll leave out 10 lines, and then he'll include a few lines, and he'll leave out 20 lines, and then he'll add a few lines. So he's, he's given himself some license to make this material more appealing. In our translations, we work under different rules and different um, stringencies. You know, we translate generally, most of the time, every line. And, um, we stay close to the original meaning and to the Persian as much as we understand it. So the nature of our translations and Coleman's versions, uh, are, that's part of what makes them, them different, but I'll still will defend Coleman. What I will critique are those, what I call Instagram Rumi, not all of Instagram Rumi, but a lot of Instagram Rumi, which is made up of uh, often watered down, trivial one-liners. Somebody will say something like, don't look, any, don't look outside yourself, find everything inside yourself. Well, if Rumi ever said anything like that, he certainly said a lot more than that, because he certainly doesn't believe that what is to be found is found in me. It is not that I don't need 
to uh, tradition. I don't need revelation. It's not that at all. It's that within the human being is a possibility of opening a window to the divine. But the important thing is opening that window to the divine. It's not, shall we say, a process of mere introspection. If anything, he, he asks us again and again and again to destroy the prison of our own beliefs and concepts and to get beyond the content of our, our, own, of our own psyches in order to experience the divine. So some of the uh, rumi that we find in social media is distorted, it's incomplete, and it's sometimes even misleading when it merely affirms the prejudices of our own individualistic society which d dismisses tradition, which dismisses uh, the hierarchy of being, and uh, which in a sense even dismisses the divine. Jake, could we just my final question? And I think it just sort of sums up everything we've said. It's about how Rumi should be read. Um, you mentioned earlier about not necessarily having a PhD in Sufism to be a Sufi. And would Rumi be happy, for example, if there was a university uh, circle, a reading circle, discussing his work? And I know in, in having attended your circles, the importance of reflection and speaking from the heart is, is an essential part of that process of reading. So could you say something? Uh, about that? The reading of Rumi is certainly magnified when there are a number of souls, minds participating, something miraculous happens. But it's also important that there be someone in the circle who has enough of a sense of Rumi's universe, of the metaphysical world that he inhabited because you can't let Rumi become just a cipher for anyone's subjective imagination. One needs to consider the intent of the author. What was, what did Rumi want us to know? What was he trying to communicate? And I believe it's pretty clear, but it can be distorted and uh, can be missed. So having somebody who has, has matured in uh, the Rumi's teachings would be a great advantage to keep people from getting possibly lost in their own subjective interpretations. But yes, a, a reading group is a great idea, much better than reading it once alone. Yeah. And what role does reflection have in that, as opposed to say critical analysis? Or is 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 are we do 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 your students engage in a higher cognitive, the supra rational sort of intellect in sort of re, in in reading and reflecting on Rumi? What 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 does I think Rumi actually uses words like, and apologies if this is out of context. Uh, the partial intellect and yeah. the total intellect and 
uh, I'm not sure if that those how applicable those are in 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 reading Rumi. I've heard lectures about Rumi that spent more time on bibliographic items and externalities than on Rumi's own message. Um, I've heard lectures where at major conferences where a paper was given on the 12 different places where Shams might have been buried. <laughs> okay, so people <laughs> get lost in superficialities, things that have nothing to do with, with the message, with the truth of, of Rumi. So one can approach it too much from merely the level of intellect and superficial surface analysis, uh, or one can try to get, uh, let oneself be touched, let one's heart be touched by the message. And so again, the perception of the heart, heartfulness is necessary here. And it shouldn't be too hard because that's a lot of what Rumi is, is saying anyway. And he says it in, in so many ways and sometimes in ways so simple a child could under, understand them. So, yeah, Rumi is to be read by the heart and not just as information to be harvested. Sheikh Kabir, thank you so much. It's an absolute pleasure and honor to be speaking with you today. Thank you for inviting me, Sakib. I wish you well in all that you undertake. Thank you. And I'll say for now, salam and ya hazrati milana. Ooh. Ooh.